It's good to have you here today in the service. My name is Matt Ritchie. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I am filling in today for a pastor who is actually in Kenya right now with our Kenya team. If you haven't said a prayer for them, please do that this week, and they are going to be serving all week there in Nairobi and then headed back on Saturday. And then Keith, uh, Pastor Keith, is actually going to be taking the rest of the summer off, or most of the summer off. He's going to be on a well-deserved sabbatical, a, a time of rest and rejuvenation. Let's celebrate that. Now, here's the downside. You're stuck with me. So <laughs> for the next four weeks, you'll hear from me. And then there'll be some other speakers interspersed throughout. And then Pastor Keith will sprinkle back in over the summer a few times. So he's not going to be totally out of pocket. But um, if you're wondering why he's not here, that is why. So, and I would like to welcome those who are joining us online. Thank you for, for joining us for this service as well. And uh, maybe you're listening to this on, on an afternoon or a Monday or a Tuesday, but welcome to those who are joining us from outside of these four walls. Now, uh, we are starting a new series today. Um, I'm gonna invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. We just finished a, a series called Overcome in the book of Revelation. And so this series is not continuing that necessarily. It just so happens that a key text that we're going to read today comes from the book of Revelation. It's the very back of the Bible. We're gonna be in chapter 12. And for those of you who are uh, new to us, I, I failed to mention this, but if you would like to connect with us and you wanna know more about what's going on in our church, um, you can just simply text the word new to the number there on the screen and uh, you can uh, ask us any questions. We're not gonna spam you, call you. We're not gonna show up at your door. We promise we're not gonna bug you in any way, but there will just be a simple follow-up from us just, to, just so we can lead you well and, uh, and start the process of getting you connected with our church if you would like. Now, if you don't want to text and you want to talk to somebody, we have our Next Steps Wall team out here. Just go right out here in the corridor and you can touch base with any of those fine folks. They even have food for you. So um, now it's not a lot of food, but it's, it's something, right? And so, uh, but go out there and you can ask them about anything that's going on, events, Bible studies, groups, ministries, volunteer opportunities, what we do with our money, um, ask them really confusing theological questions. They love that. And so they all just kind of like got mad at me, but they'll just send you to me probably. So, but anyways, we would just love to connect with you. And that's how we do that here at Grace. And so, um, but as you're, as I've already instructed you, we're in Revelation chapter 12 and we're talking about spiritual warfare. And I believe that in our culture and even sometimes in, inside the walls of our churches, there is the, the risk, there is the possibility that we have believed a great lie. And I was thinking about how, how do I introduce this? And I thought through um, all of my, my high school history classes and I tried to think of what was a great lie from the pages of history where the world was, um, was fooled and, and it cost us something. And probably the greatest lie I, could, I can think of is the lie uh, that started to take place in the 1930s. In 1931, the Olympic Committee awarded the, the honor to host the, the uh, Olympics to the country of Germany. And if you're familiar with this time frame in history, this is shortly after the, the time of World War I. Germany had just been defeated, disarmed, and they, they had once been kind of a part of the world community and considered a, 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 a participator, but now after their loss, they've been disarmed, and, and there was a lot of shame, a uh, national shame, and so they had 
been kind of trying to recover economically from that. And so they had basically been on good behavior. And so one of the things that the, the Olympic Committee thought would be good is to help Germany get back to economic standing. Let's award them the opportunity to host the Olympic Games. Now, what they didn't know was that just two years later, a man named Adolf Hitler would come to power. Germany had a kind of a weak democracy. You might even call it a leadership vacuum. And they were kind of searching for someone just to make the hard decisions. And, and Adolf Hitler came to power as a part of the, what we now know as the Nazi party. And his entire agenda was to rearm Germany and to take back what was lost and to even go beyond their borders. And, to, and he had visions, grand, grandiose visions of some form of world supremacy or, or power. And he had some... He had some uh, horrible, uh, awful um, objectives, even um, uh, that were racial. I mean, promoting the Aryan race to the demise of others. Um, he would ultimately commit genocide to the Jews, and and ho- horrible atrocities were were done at, because of the leadership of Adolf Hitler. And we now know that his name is pretty much synonymous with with evil. But in 1933, nobody knew that. And as they began to build up towards this, this uh, the, uh, I believe it was the 11th Olympiad, if I have that right, it would be um, hosted in Berlin. And you probably have heard the name Jesse Owens, an American track star. He actually participated in those games, won some gold medals. But there was some dispute because Germany, after, he came, after Adolf Hitler came to power, there's already some questionable leadership decisions that were being made. Jews were being barred from teaching in schools. They were being fired from their workplaces. There was mistreatment that was starting to come out, even against other races. And there was a, a, a pretty large uh, representation across the, the, the globe to boycott the Olympics, But some people went in and inspected what Germany was doing, and they had built a world-class village to host the athletes. They had built huge, big stadiums for the games to be competed in, and they were incredibly nice and welcoming. And so everybody kind of continued forward, and, and of course, the Olympic Games happened in Berlin. And actually, in the aftermath of those games... The, even our, uh, our, our own newspapers here in the United States began to promote Nazi Germany as a good, as a good thing, as a good, uh, as a good organization that was bringing Germany back into prominence and they desired peace and they desired uh, prosperity and they, they weren't all these rumors of racial tensions and mistreatment. They were actually false. Those were kind of overblown and Germany well, had kind of gotten a bad rap and so this was actually a good thing and what really happened was Adolf Hitler used the Olympics to sell the world a lie. Three years later, Again, in, uh, under the guise of a yet another lie, he invaded Poland, which was the spark that, that became the fire of World War II. And, and, if, and I actually forgot this, but he actually used his own troops dressed in Polish fatigues to attack his own border. And that was the excuse he used to invade Poland. He claimed that, they, that Germany had been attacked first. Now, hindsight being 2020, we can look back and we can see what happened in the aftermath. Estimates put the death toll of World War II, both, both military deaths and civilian deaths, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 55 million people. 
if you um, do some, some comparisons, the, the world population at, about, at that time in history was around 2.5 million. Estimates are a little sketchy because reporting from the Soviet Union and obviously Germany itself was, was kind of unreliable, but a rough estimate is about 2.5 million people lived on the globe at the time of World War II. So if you take 50 to 55 million, that's about 2% of the world's population that died. 2% of the world's population today would be 160 some million people. Let me put it to you this way. COVID would need to happen like 22 more times. So we lost about 7 million people to COVID in the pandemic. Imagine that happening 22 more times and that's about what it felt like to live in the time of World War II. That's how much death happened. Now here's... here's you say, well, Matt, why are you bringing this up? It's because I believe that when we believe a lie, when we believe, when there's a great delusion, the result is utter destruction. And my warning to us today is that, and I know we're sitting in church, and you're probably thinking that it's not the people inside these walls that need to hear this today, it's the people outside these walls that probably, but I think all of us need to lean in and make sure that our hearts are knitted together, that we understand and we have some common truths that we all agree upon. And one of the things that this, well, I'll just say this, the premise of this whole series is that I believe that we don't just live in a, in a physical world, but we live in a spiritual world as well. There's not just a physical realm, there's a, there's a spiritual realm. And, and, and you don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 6, just quickly, here's kind of a key verse for our series. It says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, it's easy for us to buy into the delusion that this physical realm is all there is. But scripture is very, very, very clear that there is not just a physical realm, but there is a spiritual realm. Pastor Keith referenced this in a, in a sermon a few weeks ago where he said, you know, when you walk outside and you, you, you read the, the word uh, heavens in scripture, it can refer to different things. And first of all, it can refer to the sun, the moon, the stars, the clouds, the atmosphere that we see. It can also refer to the place of God, the city of heaven, um, the spiritual dwelling, our, our hope, our, our eternal dwelling that we hope for as Christians one day where we will all be with Christ forever. That's, one, that's another definition of heaven. But then there's this verse and there's other verses that use this similar term. It says the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. There is, there is a third or there's a, there's a second Level, if you want to think of it that way, where there's a spiritual realm where angels and demons and there's cosmic powers, there's forces that battle, that war against each other. And we're going to read about that in the coming verses. But um, if you're skeptical of that, I would just remind you that there is a, a person in 1864, his name was Charles Baldier. He said this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And there's um, times when I think that when people walk through this age and even sometimes Christians are like, I don't know if I believe in actual literal Satan. What, what, it's kind of interesting to me that even the Satanists church here in Idaho, if you read on their website what they believe, they don't even believe in a literal Satan, but they're Satanists, which I don't get that, but they don't even believe in a literal Satan. And so one of the things that Satan will try to convince us of is that, hey, I'm not really here. 
But there's also a, a, another side to that that is a, even a little bit more disturbing. And somebody did a poll, in fact, it was Barna that did this poll, and, they, and it revealed that 51% of people in the United States, they do believe Satan is real, but only 44% believe that God is real. And so that's sort of upside down. And so here's one of the things that is startling to me, and this is a quote by Ken Ammi, and he said this, the second greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he's really a good guy. Now, um, this is a little gross, and middle schoolers, you pay attention, those will be right up your alley. So middle schoolers, lean in, maybe some high schoolers, you'll like this too. You adults, you just kind of tolerate this. But when I was in college, I had a friend, actually he goes to church here now, his name is Jeremy Howard, and I did not get his permission to use this. I probably should have, but anyways, Jeremy had a snake, a pet snake, when we were in college. And um, he was a year behind me, and, uh, but the kind of snake he had was a, a bald python. It was uh, about two and a half, three foot. And uh, according to him, they made great pets because that was the longest they could get, okay? And so he had a little like fish aquarium type tank thing. And, and uh, when we found out he had a bald python and that he fed it live mice, we changed our schedules, okay? We were like, Jeremy, when are you gonna feed the snake? Because it wasn't every day. It was like once a week or once every two weeks or something. And when he would come into the, the cafeteria at our, our Bible college or whatever, he'd be like, hey, I'm feeding the snake today at three. I would be like, uh, sir, I'm gonna need to get off work early. You know, you know like I'm, I have an appointment at three. I can't get out of it. And uh, we would go and watch Jeremy feed the snake. And he would take this little white, cute little mouse and he would drive, I know this sorry, but he would drop it in. And this is what was crazy to me. Like when I, the first time I observed it, I thought instant, because okay, he would wait till the snake was like hungry, right? And so I thought instant death. I thought there would just be this instant strike. He dropped that mouse in. And for the first 10 or 20 seconds, that mouse would freak out. It, would, it, would, it was trying to crawl up the sides. It was a little sad, honestly, but like it was just, and then after 20 or 30 seconds, it would calm down. It would be like, oh, well, there's, I guess there's a snake in here, but apparently it's not that big a deal. And after several minutes, and I mean like a long time, like probably 10 or 15 minutes, the mouse was crawling on the snake, sniffing the snake. Like it would like kiss the snake almost. It was like nose to nose with the snake, just no problem whatsoever. And the snake was like indifferent, didn't even care. And you're like, well, maybe he's not hungry today. And we'd be all disappointed, like, oh man, like we came all the way over here for this, you know, like, and then, and then all of a sudden you'd see this, like, the, and usually it was when the mouse would turn its back and start just playing in its own little corner or whatever. Then the snake would start to move and then boom, it would be over. And here's the startling progression that I see is, first of all, well, let me read you exactly how I wrote this down. It's bad enough if one doesn't believe that evil in the evil that seeks to devour him. But the assumption is that if, if he did believe and see the danger, then he would do something about it. How much worse is it to see the danger and still do nothing about it, believing that there's no danger at all? And I believe that we have maybe started going down this path for sure as a culture and I hope not as a church, and I don't think I see it here at Grace, but I think it's good that we remind ourselves. The devil, Satan, and we're gonna talk about who he is, he's no one to be trifled with. 
And one of the worst things we can do is to not just believe that he doesn't exist, but even worse is to believe he may be there, but it's not really that big a deal. And we read in, in Revelation 12 and, uh, about who he is, and this is a key passage. We're going to read from verse 7 down to verse 12. And if you're with me, it says there, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, speaking of the devil. And, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And this is not on the screens, but um, I wanted to turn your attention. I want to turn your attention down to later in that chapter. It talks about the, how the dragon pursues the woman and there's some allegory things in there. And I, I attempted to, I studied that out and I was like, okay, I'm not really sure I know what all this means. So I'm not going to try to define who the eagle is or who the woman, you know, all the things. But here's what I do know and here's what is clear. In verse 17 of that same chapter, the last verse of the chapter, it says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the stand of the sea. What we read here is a clear account where Satan is our enemy and he is waging war against you and I, the church, the believers, those who are found in Christ. But I wanted to make some, some things clear because this, like I said, this is, a, spirit, this is a, a series on spiritual warfare and today's theme is intelligence. What we know, what we know really matters. If we don't have good information, we can't have good application. And so we need to make sure that we know and understand the proper and right things. And the first thing we need to know, and any, any military strategist will tell you this, they said, if you're going to go into battle, if you're going to go into a war, if you're gonna go into conflict, you need to gather some information about your enemy. I sat down with one of our, our church members here this week, and he served in our Marine Corps for 20 plus years. And I asked him, I said, how important was intelligence to you and your unit when you were in, and he fought in the war of Afghanistan, deployed in the Middle East multiple times. He said, intelligence was everything. He said, we knew to the number how many people lived in each home. We knew the, their names. We knew, we knew their kids. We knew everything about them so that there, if there was any difference we could spot a threat. He said we knew when schools um, were having school because we knew if they canceled school that day, that was probably a sign of an impending attack on our base. He said we knew, um, we knew what their nutrition was. We knew their regiment. We knew their weapons. We knew, we knew how they were looking at us. He said we, we guarded our own information so that they couldn't be uh, accessing our plans and our intelligence. And so, again, I just say this, like when it comes to actual physical war, intelligence is key. The same is true in our spiritual battle. 
And we need to know who our enemy is. And I put that word know in quotation marks because this is not know as in a relationship know. This is a know about. This is information. And so who is Satan? Who is he? Well, first of all, he is an angel created by God. And I want to be very clear here that when God created Satan, and there is, uh, according to church tradition, his angelic name was probably Lucifer, or, or, and, and there was a, a dawn, a, a reference in Ezekiel to the, the morning star or the star of the dawn. Those are the terms given to him, but he was created as an angel, and he was created good. Ezekiel 28 even talks about how it's possible that he was originally created for the purpose of worship. Gabriel is another angel that's mentioned. He was created to bring a, a message to uh, the Virgin Mary. He was probably, his primary role is probably being a messenger. We read about Michael in this very passage, another angel who was a defender, a, an angel who, who is, who is a, a, someone who wages war in the spiritual realm. We don't know exactly all the things about Lucifer um, that maybe we will one day, but we think that it's possible that he was part of the worship leading in heaven. And so I wanna make it very, very clear to you that God did not create evil. He did not create Satan evil. He did not create Satan fallen. He created Satan originally good. And apparently, sometime and somewhere in heaven, there was a decision, there was a place where angels, even angels, chose of their own free will to, to honor and worship the Father or to rebel and reject the Father. And at some point, and, there, and scholars differ on this and timing and everything else, but at some point, Satan, Lucifer, he, it says there in the Old Testament, he says he aspired to be like the Most High. He wanted to be like God. And to be honest, that's the root of all of our sin as well. Anytime we rebel against the Father, it's because it starts with this idea that we want to be our own God. We wanna be the center of our own universe and we want all the credit and the praise to go to us. If we're honest and if we peel back the layers of all of our sinful choices and desires, that's the root of it. And so honestly, if we share in the same rebellion as Satan, if we share in that same kind of rebellion, we will share in the same kind of punishment. I wanna come back, we're gonna talk about that in a second, but I wanna come back to this idea. I wanna make sure that everybody understands Satan is not a God. He's not like Jesus's brother. He's not higher than the angels. He is created. He, in fact, compared to God, he's like, he's like this, okay? He's nothing. And I wanna give you, I hope that gives you some confidence because greater is he who is in you than is in the world. And so, that's who he is. Satan, and, and according to the scriptures, we read that Satan is the head of demons. The, a third of the angels has apparently rebelled with him. For some reason, we don't know why or how exactly when, but a third of the angels, and there's a, apparently a bunch of angels. And so those fallen angels we now re refer to as demons. And Satan is the head of the demons, and he leads the rebellion against God, and he leads them in, in propagating evil in the world. And so, first of all, he is created by God. Secondly, he stands, as I just read, opposed to the church. This is the primary role of our enemy. 
He stands opposed to the church and those who are in Christ. In fact, the word Satan is actually derived from a a, a Hebrew word that literally means adversary. He is our adversary. Scripture also refers to Satan as the devil. Uh, We read here just a few moments ago that it refers to him as the serpent, the great dragon, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the prince of demons, the accuser, the tempter. And like other angels and demons, Satan is an invisible being. He's highly intelligent and he's very powerful. He's nothing, no one to be trifled with. He is responsible for tempting Eve in the garden and leading humanity's first parents into sin. And, 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 and since that initial, his initial rebellion, Satan has continued to work against God's righteous and saving purposes in the world. He stands opposed to everything God wants to do and he actively opposes the gospel. He tries to, to blind unbelievers to its truth. He's responsible for the persecution of Christians around the world, which by the way, it's not, that's not a thing of the past. That is happening right now, today. Just go to the, the, the website, The Voice of the Martyrs, and start looking up some of the stories and some of the statistics. Just Google Christian persecution, and you will find dashboards, and you will find statistics, and it's current. It's happening. There are places in this world, um, I, I think even one of the ones right now that's really bad is the area of Sudan. And even like North Korea is ramping up. It's, it's, there's countries around the world that are persecuting Christians for their stance, for their faith in Christ. And Satan, he is the one behind it all. And then he continues, even within the walls of the church, he tries to confuse and promote false doctrine and false, uh, false, uh, false teaching. And more than that, he's opposed to your Christian life. He, he's constantly using his network of, of, of spiritual forces, whatever that looks like, to incite Christians to fall into sin. And he's constantly attempting to ensnare them in righteousness. I would refer to that verse 17 in, in Revelation 12. And the dragon became furious and he went off to make war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's making war against us. Peter talks about how he's like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He hates everything that God loves and God loves you and I deeply. And God, because he loves us, because he's placed us in in this place of honor, he's sent his own son to die for us, to forgive us, to, to restore us, to redeem us. That has made you and I the object of Satan's hatred. He hates God, but he hates you and I because of what God has done for us. And he knows, he knows his time is limited. He knows his time is short. He knows he doesn't have much longer. And so the best way that he can continue to hurt the heart of God is to destroy you and I. Now, that's what he tries to do. That's what he does his best to accomplish. But I think it's important that we talk about a few things he cannot do. First of all, because he's created by God and he is not a God in any shape or form or fashion, he is not omnipresent. We believe that God, our creator, can be everywhere at once. He can be in your life, he can be in my life, he can be in your heart and mind, he can be in my heart and mind, and it's all through time. He's not bound by space, he's not bound by time. He can be everywhere at once. Satan can't do that. He's nothing like God in that respect. In fact, it's probably, I'm not gonna say 
for sure, but it's very unlikely that you and I have stood face to face or toe to toe with Satan himself. Whenever we've felt temptation or spiritual conflict in our lives, it's probably not Satan himself. It could be uh, another minion or a demon or whatever you wanna call it, but it, it's probably not him. Jesus faced off directly with Satan in Matthew 4, where Satan came to him and tempted him three times. And, and Christ gave us a great example of how to resist the devil and to fight those battles. But Satan can't be everywhere. And I think sometimes we give him far too much credit, like he can't know our thoughts. I think he can maybe figure out what we are thinking or have some, some tricks to get us to be thinking some way. I, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true or not, but I read somewhere that if you're ever uh, doing some public speaking and you wanna come from a place of authority, make sure you wear black. Well, I wore nice soft green and blue because I wanted to be relatable and kinda like, you know, I don't know if that worked, but like we can, there's some psychological tricks out there. We can use colors and we can use messaging and there's marketing. And have you ever wondered like when you go to a store, why all the candy bars are stacked right there next to the register? And you're like, why? And then all the kids candy is way down here. Like you're like, why isn't the kids candy way up here? Because the marketer knows that if I can get your kid to be thinking about this down here, then you will start thinking about it down there. And if we understand that as humans, I, I do believe that Satan has some tactics. He's not stupid. He, he can, it can feel like he's in our mind, but I wanna remind you that he's not. In fact, I would say this, if you are in Christ, if you have built your life on the cornerstone of Jesus, he has no place in your life. He has no territory. He has no control. He has no dominion. He has no authority in your life. And that's the hope of the believer. Okay, that was a lot better than how you responded. Let's give some Jesus some praise for how he guards and protects our life. Satan is on a very short leash. And the, and the natural question is, why is he here at all? And I cannot answer that. I wish I could. Here's my best stab at it. Is that for whatever reason, he has been given control. And I, I think this is, this is Matt's opinion. It's because we invited him here. Through Adam and Eve and whatever else, they, they gave him a foothold. And it may not be, you may not, well, that's not my fault. That was their fault. Why do I have to? He's been given some sort of influence in this world. And I believe it's mostly because, if not solely, because we let him in. And if we're honest, we've allowed the satanic influences, the evil forces of this world, we've allowed them into our own hearts and lives at some point. We've played with it. We've allowed it in, and, and honestly, um, we're, we're, we're not innocent in this whole scheme. We can try to blame our first parents or others, but if we're honest with ourselves, all have sinned and all have fallen short. But I wanna remind you that Satan has no place in your life, in your life and, until you let him in. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. I don't believe he knows everything about the future. He knows some of it, but he doesn't know everything. I don't think he's all powerful. He's limited and he operates only within God's parameters. He cannot do anything without um, God allowing him to, to do that. Now, again, that brings up a question. How, is that, how does that work? Why does that work? My confidence is in the Lord. 
and I'm trusting him. And here's, the, here's what you need to know. Satan, and this is the third thing, he's not only created by God, he not only stands opposed, but he is already defeated. He is defeated. From the Proto-Evangelum, which is considered the first verse where the gospel is communicated, we find these words in Genesis 3.15. It says that Christ would crush the serpent's head. And from the very beginning, Satan has known that his time is short, it's limited, and he lives under a shadow of defeat. And as I already said, he has no power over you if you are in Christ. And he lives and he knows his final defeat. Upon his return, this is um, again referenced in Revelation. You can turn over to chapter 20, read that later if you want. But it says, Christ will completely defeat Satan and the demons and he will cast them into the lake of fire. And I would just pause here and say this, hell, the lake of fire was never intended for people. It was only intended for Satan. That's who it was designed for. But the solemn reminder, the sober reminder is this, if we share in the same rebellion, we share in the same demise. Now, that's all about Satan. That's all about our enemy. There's some basics that we need to know about him and that's good information. But as I already referenced, Satan can't be everywhere at once and his power is limited. And furthermore, I think he gets some blame for some things that actually he has nothing to do with. Because we can be our own enemies sometimes. Can we be honest? Anybody ever do dumb things? Anybody make mistakes? Okay. Um, I'm not alone. I appreciate that. In fact, um, I want to spend some time just analyzing ourselves because I think sometimes it's not just knowing our, our enemy, but it's, it's about knowing ourselves. That's one of the key things, again, in intelligence. So like when I talked to, again, our military personnel and I said, you know, like you have to know your own capabilities, your own weaknesses. They knew in their convoys which trucks were the most vulnerable. And so they would take special precautions to protect those most vulnerable places in their unit or in their, in their convoys because they knew that the enemy would target that. And so knowing yourself is, is as important as knowing your enemy when you're going into battle. And, and that is true in your spiritual battle as well. And so uh, we need to know and understand who we are. And make no mistake, through every generation, through all of human history, one of the first things our, our enemy Satan will go after is your identity. Because if he can confuse you about who you are, it will limit, it will keep you from living out the purpose that you were designed to live out. And so he will try to confuse you about who you are and he will label you and criticize you and accuse you and get you to buy some lies specifically about your identity just to mess you up. So it's important we understand who we are. Now, there's a tool that some uh, psychologists, people smarter than I, they came up with a pretty simple tool though to help us understand how do we study yourself? How can we better understand ourselves? And I'm gonna show you a picture. It's actually a graphic. It's called the Jahari window. And I don't know if you've heard of this, but these psychologists broke the self down into four different areas. And uh, I, I like this because I think it shows us a little bit about how we can study ourselves. So first of all, we have the open area. This is the area that is known to me and, and known to others. And so if this was about myself, my life, I know I have red hair, you know I have red hair, I have red hair, that's without question, okay? I'm wearing a green shirt, you see I'm re wearing a green shirt, I know it's a green shirt, 
it's all open. Like when I go catch fish and post them on Instagram, you know I caught a fish, I know I caught a fish, you know I'm holding it out to the camera to make it look bigger, I know I'm holding it out to the camera to make it look bigger, there's no illusions, like it's, it's all open area. Like it's, I'm not hiding anything, you know I'm not hiding anything. It's what is known to me and also known to others. And this is, you know, put yourself in in that place. What is known to you and what is known to others? It's not just what is on social media, but it's probably a lot, okay? And then it's probably the area where we try to make look the best. This is our surface selves, okay? The other area is the blind spot where, where it's something that is known to the people around you, but it's not known to you. It could be the mayonnaise on your cheek from lunch that nobody told you about, okay? Or it could be the cowlick on the back of your head that you forgot to comb down in the morning, okay? And so like, and there's a few rules in life. You never refuse a Kleenex and you never refuse a mint, right? Okay, so there's things that people are perceiving about you that you don't know about yourself and there's blind spots. And by the way, real friends will tell you, okay? Real, true friends who care about you will tell you. Now, um... There's also other areas where there might be insecurities or areas that you're defensive about for whatever reason. And people around you can sense it and they see a weakness or they see a deficiency or they see an insecurity, they see a place, they they might see your next step, but you don't see it yourself. It's a blind spot. Then there's the hidden areas where it's the area that you know about but nobody else does. It's the place where you harbor secret thoughts or feelings or whatever, and you don't want to bring those into the open for whatever reason. Maybe it's shame or guilt. Maybe somebody out there knows it somewhere, but the majority of people around you don't know it. And this can be a dangerous place where things that are not good and unhealthy can begin to take root and grow in your life. And then finally, there's the place of our lives that are unknown to us and unknown to other people. They're only known to God. When I see this, my first response is, this is why we have things at Grace like discipleship ministry. Because this helps us understand that I need outside perspective in a lot of different places and areas in my life to help me grow and help me take the next step. I have, we all have blind spots and we all have things in our hidden area that we need somebody who is trustworthy that we can be honest with and open with and we can talk to them about it. We try to have groups and Bible studies and we try to facilitate community in such a way that you can find such relationships here because we believe that it's, 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 it's sometimes difficult to follow Jesus, but it's a whole lot easier when you're doing it with friends, when you're doing it with people who can encourage you and help guide you through that process, who have maybe been there before. And let's be honest, it's always a benefit to have outside coaching, to have outside help. It's always been kind of mind-boggling to me, but Tiger Woods, at the height of his golfing prowess, when he was winning every single thing that it seemed he played in, he had a golf coach. Now, that coach could not hit a golf ball, anything like Tiger Woods, yet he would stand behind Tiger and tell him what he was doing wrong. And here's why, it's because Tiger admitted, he said, because when I'm taking that swing, what I feel, what I feel is not real. And so I need someone other than me to watch what I'm doing so they can tell me the truth. And here's the reality, the truth, if we know the truth, the truth will set us 
free and it sometimes takes someone else to look into our lives and help us tell us and help us, uh, help us understand what the truth really is. Now, when we look at this, uh, this is just a simple tool that I'm trying to give you to help you better understand yourself, evaluate, okay, what is known, what is, what is in my, do I have blind spots, do I have people speaking into my life, are there things hidden that I need to bring into the open, and what, do I, what in the world do I do about the unknown, how do I deal with that? Sun Tzu, or Sun Tzu, I'm not sure how exactly to say it, he was credited um, with this quote in the book, Art of War, Um, which was written hundreds of years before Christ. He said this, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. In other words, if you know completely your enemy, his weaknesses, his strengths, you know yourself, you're gonna be fine. He went on, if you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. So it's good to know yourself, but if you just go into battle blind and you don't know what your enemy's capable of, you might win some, but you're gonna lose some. And then finally, if you know neither your enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. In other words, if you have no information, if you don't have good information, you're gonna experience defeat. Now, if I was there while he was writing this and he wrote it down, I said, man, that is really good. Excellent try, almost. And (laughs) I'm not some smart person necessarily, but I do think I have an upgrade to this quote. And here's your big point for the day. And before I give it to you, here's the problem. I don't think we can know our spiritual enemy completely. And I think just based on that Jahari window, there's a part of our lives that are gonna remain unknown. Only God knows. So what's the answer? Here's your key thought for today. When when it comes to the intelligence and this idea of spiritual battle, the key to it all is knowing Jesus. We need to know the one who knows us, who knows you and the enemy both completely. Let me, I might rephrase it like this. It's not just about what you know, it's about who you know. And so when somebody goes into a, 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 if you can imagine, if somebody was going into an actual physical battle on the, on, with tanks and guns and all that, and they could know the enemy completely, 100% and themselves 100%, they would take it. But the reality is, I don't think in the spiritual realm that's entirely possible. And so what, what do we need to do? I need to go to the one who knows me better than I know myself. And I need to go to the one who knows the enemy better than I could ever know him. And I need to operate within his strength and not my own. Does that make sense? And so how do we do this? Quickly, just five minutes to go. I don't think I warned you, but turn over to James chapter four. James chapter four. And we read this in verse seven. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. These are not in your notes, but I wanna give you just a few things quickly as um, steps of application. First of all, according to this passage, the first thing we need to do is submit to God. Submit to God. Let me say it this way. Get over yourself. (laughs) Okay, this is not about you. 
And I don't mean to hurt your feelings or to be harsh because what God ultimately grants us in this relationship of submission is something better than we could ever get on our own. The identity you want or think you want is nothing compared to what God or who God created you to be. This is not about us, this is about him. And I would challenge you to lay down your life, lay down your identity. Yes, there is a cost of following Jesus. Lay it down, but he has something better for you. I promise you that. Secondly, resist the devil. Don't play games. Don't play games with Satan. Don't mess around with darkness. Um, the, the, the scriptures remind us in Luke, I believe it's 11, where it says that the, eye, the gateway to the soul is the eyes and the ears. We need to be careful about what we take in. As I mentioned before, Satan has no power or control over us in any shape, form, or fashion until we invite him in. And there are gonna be some subtle ways that he can entice us and fool us, trick us, lie to us, scheme to us, to allow us, that, that will allow us to, to fall for something. We can invite him in unintentionally. Think about what you're watching. Think about what you're listening to. Are those gates bolted and locked? Are they bolted and locked for your kids? For your grandkids? Are you taking measures to guard your home? There's some, that we can't do everything, but, th but that doesn't give us excuse to do nothing. We do what we know to do and we're not gonna play games. We're not gonna give any footholds and we're not gonna invite him in. Thirdly, draw near to God. Proximity to God matters. And this is mostly done through communication or relationship with him. So spend time with him, talk to him complain to him, vent to him. <laughs> He's, he can handle it, it's okay. Share your anger, your frustrations, share your victories, your achievements, your blessings. Invite him into your everyday life, your routine, your work, your play. Include him, include him. Fourthly, cleanse your hands. If you discover malpractice, fix it. When you make mistakes, put things into place to, to, sure, to ensure that doesn't happen again. Get rid of habits. Maybe there's toxic relationships. If you're not the influencer in the relationship, I'm thinking of like a friendship or maybe a dating relationship and, there, and, and that relationship is pulling you away from God rather than you pulling them towards God, there may need to be a, a place where you cut it off. Maybe it's an item in your home. Maybe it's something that you own that provides an opening. It's a, it's a, it's a, a vulnerability that allows the enemy to, to work. Or maybe it's just yourself that you're fighting with and you're warring with and, and you're like, man, I am weak in this area. I cannot have this in my home. I cannot have this in my possession. Maybe it's places you go. Maybe you need to just have a new place where you hang out instead of the old place. But when you, when you sense what needs to be changed, you cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. This kind of goes back to the unknown part of your life. There's that part where you don't know it and nobody else does. Uh, say, God, search my heart. Search me. Reveal to me things about myself that I do not understand. Help me to have clarity about who I am so that I can better live for you. Allow him to search your heart and purify your motives. In your prayers, give him access, give him control, give him first place, give him your worship. And then finally, number six, hum humble yourself. And again, this isn't about thinking less of yourself. This is not thinking, well, I'm stupid, I'm an idiot, I'm dumb, I'm a failure, I'm never amount to anything. That's all the, the, the labels and the, the lies of the enemy that he is th trying to throw your way. 
That's not from God. But God says, hey, you know what? If you humble yourself before me, then what's the next phrase? Then he will exalt you. You don't have to lift yourself up. He will lift you up. He will be the one who will lift your head. And again, this is about submission. It's about living in communion with God and saying, God, here's my life. I can't lead it. It's yours. That's how we fight this battle. It's not about us. It's not about knowing the enemy. It's just, here's the key again, knowing the one, knowing Jesus Christ who knows you and the enemy completely. That's how we win. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and the promise we have today. Lord, there is so much hope. Um, Lord, in spite of all the brokenness that goes on in this world around us, Lord, so in spite of some of the brokenness that's present, present even in our lives, Lord, I pray that each person under the sound of my voice would walk out of here with the hope and the knowledge that if their life is built on you, they have nothing to fear. The enemy can't touch us. The enemy can't do anything to us. He is powerless compared to you. But Lord, I pray that we would also take to heart the, the sober warnings. Lord, even myself, Lord, there's probably some areas in my life where I need to be better, where I need to clean uh, some things up. And Lord, I pray that we in those moments would have the attitude of instant and relaxed obedience. Whatever you say, whatever you call us to, may we just have a heart that says, yes, Lord, we want what you want. This is not about us. This is about you. And we believe that. We, we trust that. We step into that because we know that what you have for us is better. It's not just right and good. It is better. And Lord, I thank you for being that kind of God for us today. We look forward to the days to come. Lord, it's an opportunity to share, to share this light with those around us. There's a whole host of broken people that no doubt we're gonna come in contact with this week and they need to hear what you have to offer. And so Lord, may we be faithful to live as you have called us to live in this age. We pray these things in your name, amen.